There has been a lot of talk the last couple of weeks about changes that could be happening to BC's Land Act. It's been a pretty contentious debate. Now, critics are concerned about public access to Crown lands and whether or not this gives a, a veto power to First Nations. And what does all that even mean, anyway? Well, the minister responsible, Nathan Cullen, he's been on our show and he's been trying to respond, but there's still been a lot of pushback to this. So because there are still so many questions and concerns, we obviously wanted to talk more about this. Now, Jessica Clogg is the executive director and senior counsel with West Coast Environmental Law. She says these proposed changes aren't necessarily what people think, and she joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Now, I read, Jessica, where you said these proposals could actually be more problematic for First Nations. Why is that? If we go back to 2019, when the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act was passed unanimously uh, in BC, that act contained uh, provisions that would allow uh, ministers to enter into joint or consent-based agreements uh, with First Nations around some aspects of land management in their territories. Now, many of us, uh, including many legal legal commenters and many of our First Nations clients, believed that that would actually be a pathway to start negotiating those agreements. But instead, BC has taken a very narrow, bureaucratic, and slow approach to implementation. BC's uh, interpretation is that they need to amend virtually every statute in BC, like they're proposing to do with the Land Act. And then even after those changes are made to the Land Act to implement these agreements, uh, there would still be a further step where the Crown had to agree to enter into a negotiation. There has to be a cabinet mandate. Uh, BC effectively has to agree uh, before anything would actually happen on the ground. That's why in the last four, five years since DRIPA was passed, we've only seen a vanishingly small number of these agreements. So if there's, I th- what do you think that when you hear about the criticism, the concerns that people have about this process and what's happening, what do you think? I've been alarmed and uh, surprised by a lot of the inflammatory rhetoric given that the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act passed unanimously with many positive and supportive statements from all sectors, including industry. I fear that the rhetoric we're seeing here is um, based on outdated uh, racist doctrines um, that through which uh, BC was colonized as if Indigenous nations and their laws and their governments uh, didn't exist. It feels like we're into the silly season in the months leading up to an election and First Nations human rights are being used as a political football. So you think that this actually creates more red tape? The steps that are being taken to amend the the Land Act are, according to BC, a necessary procedural step to implement the joint and consent-based decision-making provisions of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. I have the chance to work uh, every day through our uh, Revitalizing Indigenous Law for Land, Air and Water or RELAW program with nations who are revitalizing their laws, who are ready to um, step up and are stepping up to steward uh, their territories well and to do so um, in consultation and cooperation with BC. The rollout of DRIPA has, quite frankly, been slow uh, and bureaucratic, but these are necessary procedural steps, according to BC, so let's get them done. Okay, but Jessica, what do you say then to people who are concerned? What does this mean for, you know, everyone's access to these same lands? 
Legally, absolutely nothing will change on the ground once the proposed Land Act amendments are made. So where do you think that, look, the concern then is what, that people are just imagining it? But what about the fact that if there is an agreement that's entered into with the local First Nations, what does that mean for the rest of the public to have access? What we see, for example, um, where there are existing joint uh, decision-making agreements, for example, on Haida Gwaii, is that you uh, potentially might have a new body there. It's the Haida Gwaii Management Authority. It's got two Haida folks, two provincial folks, and a chair. And now, uh, by legislation, that uh, management um, committee makes certain decisions on Haida Gwaii, like setting the allowable annual cut. It's simply a different way of making um, those statutory decisions in a way that is um, done in consultation and cooperation with uh, the nations who've stirred the, those territories for millennia. Okay, so you think that this wouldn't be any different then, that people will just get used to it? My experience in working with nations who are revitalizing their laws is that uh, I think there's a reasonable expectation that better decisions will be made when we braid together uh, Indigenous uh, law and, and British Columbia law to make decisions together. Are you worried when you see what's happening then with this discussion? Yes, I am. Because we have a 150-plus year legacy of laws that were built up on racist doctrines that assumed that First Nations uh, peoples uh, were less than uh, Europeans. And when I hear the rhetoric right now, it embodies a racist assumption that First Nations um, do not have the ability and capacity and expectation that they will make decisions about their territory in a reasoned way according to their legal traditions. And to see that kind of rhetoric um, saddens me greatly. Uh, I think Canadians are better than that. Are you concerned for the process then with when you hear that rhetoric? Absolutely. The Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act commits BC legally to align laws with the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. In other words, to start overhauling our statutes to root out those racist underpinnings. With rhetoric like that, I fear it has a chilling effect on the necessary work of reconciliation. The word veto keeps getting thrown around a lot, doesn't it? Indeed. Where do you think that comes from then? I believe it, it's an attempt to misdirect the conversation. The actual legal requirements speak of consultation and cooperation, joint decision-making, agreements for consent-based decision-making. Again, that veto uh, word is like a dog whistle uh, bringing up the sort of racist assumption that uh, First Nations cannot uh, govern, that they are not governments, that they do not have uh, governance rights. And quite frankly, that's disappointing. Uh, are you, have, has there been enough pushback then? Like I know we've seen the minister try to come out and talk about this more and said he's willing to talk about it, but is, is there not enough response, do you think? One of the things that we've seen in focus uh, group testing is that when even a small number of voices are expressing aggressive, uh, racist or inflammatory views, it can silence others. And so that's my greatest fear. But I do believe if we look back at um, all of the positive public statements when the DRIPA Act was first passed, I believe that ultimately British Columbians understand the need for this pathway of reconciliation. 
Right. But that's where the hard work happens, doesn't it, Jessica? I mean, you kind of alluded to that, too, is that it's great to say we're going to do this. But then when we come down to what it actually means, they we run into some challenges. Absolutely. If you look at the slow, measured, incremental approach that BC has been taken, uh, has been taking, you know, um, my folks, my, my clients might say it's too slow, but it's certainly not. Uh, the radical um, and immediate shift that um, some commentators have been suggesting. Okay, so then from your perspective, Jessica, what do you want people to know about all this? I would like people, I wish they could be with me every day um, in Indigenous communities, uh, working with elders, um, growing to understand and revitalize their laws that have cared well for the land for so many years and to have that um, that that faith and that hope that by bringing forward Indigenous legal traditions that we will have decisions that are ultimately better for all. Well, Jessica, thank you very much for your time on that today. Thank you. That's Jessica Clogg, who's the Executive Director and Senior Counsel with West Coast Environmental Law. Uh, And just wanting to point out that all of this debate and discussion about the proposed changes and amendments to the Land Act, uh, she believes are not being understood properly. She thinks they're actually quite onerous for First Nations, that it's not all the hand everything over to First Nations that some people have portrayed it as, that it's a lot more red tape for them, and that BC is actually proceeding really slowly on this, which clearly is not the perspective I think that uh, we've heard on the other side of things or that people believe is happening. Uh, and so, yeah, there is a big job here for the government to fix where somehow the discussion about this has, has gone off the rails a little bit. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.